everybody. Thank you for checking out the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark. And back in the 90s, I discovered this great band led by James Hall. They were the opener for Maria McKee when I saw her, and I was a fan from the first note. The band's guitarist was Lynn Wright. And after two albums, the band was done, and in the pre-internet days, it wasn't so easy to stay on top of your favorite artists, especially if they hadn't quite broken into the mainstream. So I'm beyond happy to have Lynn on the podcast. To begin with, I try to sell him a Farfisa organ after he just got home from a flight from Berlin. From there, we talk about his musical career and his ever-changing sound and style. He's very open about how the music industry almost broke him. He took a break from it after leaving James Hall to work for a children's book publisher. But a stint with the Reverend Vince Anderson brought back Lynn's love of music. Since then, he's written his own music, recorded in a myriad of styles, including music concrete. He has a lot of stuff he's preparing to release, even though COVID has been particularly harsh for him. Check out LynnWrightComposer.com for new releases and info on where to see him live. He's currently playing with the Royal Arctic Institute, among other things. Follow him on Instagram at LynnWR underscore GHT. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. And you can always help us out by going to ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety or performanceanx.threadless.com. So get a drink, get some snacks, and get ready to hear some great stories and wonderful music with Lynn Wright on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Perfect. All right. So I'll give you a brief one and then, you know, all right. Hi, this is Lynn Wright, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety Podcast. That's okay. Okay, and then, uh, all right, so I'm bad at, like, saying all the bands. I don't even know where to start, so. Okay, all right. Hi, this is Lynn Wright, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety Podcast. You can find out about all my upcoming releases at lynnwrightcomposer.com. And uh, hopefully I'll see you with Royal Arctic Institute in February on the East Coast. Yo, I, I am jet lag because my flight kept getting canceled on the way back. So I got back in the States about four hours ago. Oh, wow. Do you want to do it another time? No, I want to do it exactly right now because I just had some coffee and I'm feeling good. And I need to get back on this schedule because I have to start working with somebody in two days. And oh. I'm, I sleep on planes really easily. I'm fortunate. So I slept Good. six hours today, but you, it's funny. You emailed Dana. Yes. And I was sitting next to her and, and, and I said, wait till I leave. <laughs> Actually you emailed Dana and like three of myself and the keyboardist from B and flower, the original and Dana were all sitting in a room with Simon Goff, who was our touring violinist when we got back together about 10 years ago. Wow. We're all kind of having a little go anyway meal with me and Dana's apartment in Berlin. And then she got that. And then everyone's like, oh, let's wanting to chime in. And I said, look, <laughs> let Dana let Dana answer when I leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she told me when she got back, or she uh, replied to me. She's like, he just left my apartment. He's heading back to the States. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize he was still over there. Yeah, I stayed. It was a crazy trip, you know. Yeah. I, sp I suppose the, the the violinist Simon, he, I work with him a lot. And he had a tour opening for this band, um, Black Country New Road oh, from cool. England. And then 
and I was going to go out with him, and then we're going to mix a record I just made that I guess will probably, because I'm talking to a few different labels, as long as it takes, come out in 2023. But wow. and and we're mixing something else. We're releasing. So we had studio work, but this whole tour, of course, COVID's really bad in Europe right now. Someone in the other band got sick. Oh. In England, we got the call the day before. Oh, it's not happening. So. I just did studio work with him for the month, but I got to spend a lot of time with Dana and all my former bandmates and all my friends over there. So it was, it was a great, it was a great month, you know, but it's like, yeah, but they canceled my flight because they didn't, I mean, they didn't say this, but judging from the number of people on the flight today, they were canceling flights because they didn't have enough people coming back. Oh, wow. Oh, that's awful. But it worked out. It, you know, it worked out. Anyways, oh, enough enough about that. <laughs> enough about me. Let's talk more about me. Well, I guess yeah. that's what we're going to do, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. That's why we have connected. Oh, and there okay. goes my dog. Good. My... All right. I don't. I don't know though. He sometimes he just thinks he hears something and then he'll just start going crazy. I'm... I'm fine with dogs. I'm fine with kids. I like them both. Because you're uh, one thing I, I liked once I found out about. I mean, when Danny was on your podcast, I listened to it. But then when oh. Grant was on it, I started going back and and listening. And one thing that's really interesting is you do cover a lot of ground. Yeah, you know, you'll go from like you talked about. You talked to most of the Swans, and then. But then you have a lot of great songwriters and roots players on the show, and that's yeah. it, it, I, I appreciate. You know, I appreciate just like that, well, like you. A per, you know, the fact that it's like I'm not just doing doom metal, and, right. you know, or I'm not a country podcaster. What you know, because a lot of things are really specific, and it's great just to hear someone talking to musicians. So. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, a lot of a lot of podcasts will stay very genre specific, and. I like a lot of different genres. And in fact, I've grown to enjoy a lot more genres because I've hooked up with some PR people who get me some of the people that you're talking about, like uh, a lot of the Zydeco stuff that I've had on, like Corey Ledette and Dwayne Doopsy, uh, Mark Bingham. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, I didn't, like I could appreciate Zydeco, but I didn't get it until I saw it live. And once I saw it live, then I was like, Oh, now now the records makes you know now that now I feel it more. I mean, it made yeah. sense to me musically, but I it was just I mean, I listened to a lot of different kinds of music, yeah. and I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of music. And but just seeing it live when I was living in Louisiana, I was just like, oh, I get this. And they're such yeah. great players. It's like I'm I'm a bit in awe of like their technical ability oh yeah like i mean i didn't know i didn't even i didn't know what a second line was i'd heard of it but i didn't know what it was until like had chris lackanac on yeah yeah well the, the second line man i i'm a huge i was into i was into that from the minute i i i heard it yeah got it. <laughs> well how did you get into music in the first place i mean we talked about me a little bit now how did you get into it oh man roundabout well my brother I have two brothers. They're both older than me. And the middle one, he was a great natural guitar player. Oh. And he, in the 70s, late 70s, stuff, he was a bit more into like the blue, you know, like the classic rock people from the late 60s, early 70s, and some blues. Yeah. And then, of course, he went kind of this shredder Van Halen type route. 
but he was into everything. He was into a lot of punk bands. So he taught me the basic chords when I was nine or 10. And then he bought me, he got, or he got my parents to buy me a bass, a little Fender Music Master when I was in middle school. And I think mostly he just wanted someone to play bass with him. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, briefly we had a punk band and I got into it. And then I kind of like, in high school, I was not sure. I, I, I wrote a lot. You oh. know, I wrote like prose and, you know, poetry and stuff. I'm not saying it was great, but <laughs> so I always thought that's what I would do. And so I, but then I got into, in high school, I played in like, you know, the whole 80s Paisley Underground Neo Psychedelic. Oh, yeah. I had, I had a little briefly, a couple little of those kind of garage rocky, you know, like Farfiso organ, distorted, <laughs> blown out 60s guitars. Hey, and, if you want one, I know where you can get a Farfisa, uh I know where one's for sale. <laughs> oh, I was just talking to Dana about how I need to like minimize my 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 amount of gear. But uh, Don Zentara is from Inner Ear Studios in DC. His is for sale. Uh, <laughs> I wish, but uh, New York is not exactly the place to pile a bunch of gear up in an apartment. Good um, point. And and I already have a storage unit to keep some of my stuff. <laughs> so yeah, so I just went from. That and then I stopped playing for a couple of years, and oh, really? I, but I listened, but I just wrote. Was there a reason just, why you stopped playing? Well, I I wanted, I was I didn't know what I wanted to do. In other words, I didn't I didn't have the technical ability to do what I wanted to do musically, and I didn't like no one. My brother would teach me stuff. I didn't want to go that route, and I just got really interested in literature. Okay. And so I wrote. And then, though, the, this funny story is I started thinking about playing music again because I was sitting in my bedroom and I was living in Atlanta, Georgia. My family moved there for high school. And there were these two college radio stations left of the dial. One was RAS, typical college station of the 80s. And the other was WREK, which would play anything from Tuvan Throat singing to like thrash metal to, to anything oh, all nice. back to back. And they also had a good live show and, and, you know, you could hear anything. And, but in between them, there's this station that didn't come in really, but I was always, you know, huh, what's that? And one day I'm turning between them and it came in and there's this saxophone I heard actually as a bass at first. And I was like, what is this? And it was John Coltrane. Oh. And I knew of John Coltrane, of course, cause he's like the jazz guy that all rock people got into, you know, and, India, it was the piece India, oh. and I just listened to the whole thing all the way through, and I said, "What the hell did I just hear?" And <laughs> and you know, of course, Friday rolled around. I had a little money. I went to the record store and I found it, and that was that. But I still, and so I started playing again. And then right after high school, my friend was uh, the grandson of a folk artist named Howard Finster. Okay. Uh, who did like a Talking Heads album cover, Little Creature and uh, Little Creatures, and some REM album cover? And he was like, you know, a self-taught, like eccentric from North Georgia. And he had a like this thing called Paradise Gardens, a sculpture garden. And he also had these houses on it that weren't really lived in. And so the summer after high school, I moved up there with my friend, and we were working for him, and we started just having a band. And, you know, one of the buildings there and playing 
And of course, since he had done an REM album cover too, one of the roadies came by and said, Oh, you have a band, gave us a bunch of like picks and strings. And oh, cool. So then I moved back to Atlanta and played in some bands, and that's where I met James Hall, was my upstairs neighbor. Oh, okay. But then I said, You know, I don't know, I want to write. And so I stopped again for a year and I wrote a novel and I read the novel and I said, Oh, there's one good chapter and the rest of it's garbage. And <laughs> What and I was working in a bar and I was like, "What am I?" Doing? Oh, and before James had left, somehow I we had made an album together that never got released. Oh, and it was wow! Three guitars and drums and some piano and very droney like Spaceman Three. Do you ever heard of that band? Or yeah. Loop or, it was very much that style, but James never put it out. He was still in oh, that band, Marry My Hope, at the time. Right. And he'd gotten some money from the label, and we just went in and made it one weekend. Oh, wow. And so I knew him, but I was like, you know, I, I want to play music. And so I called him up, and he's down in New Orleans, and he says, well, I'm writing music, I'm making music, but I don't know what I want to do musically. Do I want to have a band? Do I want to play organ in a church? I don't know what I want to do. And, but I'm thinking about it. And then he's, you know, I called him six months later and he said, you know, I, I'm, well, I'm working with this drummer. So I went down there for two weeks and I said, well, I'm going to move, move there and join his band. But so I just started practicing guitar eight hours a day. And, oh, wow. and so I really learned to play guitar when, you know, 18, 19, 20, like I knew how to play already, but that's when I really learned and being in his band was really my musical education. So, you know, when uh, when James was your upstairs neighbor and you made this crazy album that he didn't tell me about when he was on the podcast. So I'm going to have to ask him about. Well, this. he probably doesn't like it, but I don't know <laughs> what, what I think. I think actually that the master tapes were lost in Katrina. Like, uh, a lot of stuff. but well, did you guys ever play out together at that point? No. OK, no. All I remember is like I wasn't playing much. And I, you know, I went upstairs and he's playing me a song and. I mean, I might be wrong about this. He can correct me because I, but I seem to remember I had this song and I played it and it just sounded good us playing together. And, and, but I don't know, I might've played like a chord that, and he, it, it wasn't in there and he liked it. And so, you know, he kind of put it in the song and, you know, really, I just sort of hustled my way into it. Not that project that just happened, but yeah. I, I, cause I was playing bass mostly then, but then I just, kind of hustled my way into his band because early on when I played with him, it was just two guitars and drums and we would turn tune our low E down to like whatever the key of the song was. And you generally let it drone Oh wow! underneath it. And we were playing one night and we, I don't know, Grant, I mean, James just never found a bass player. And then this bass player comes up to us and he says, I really want to be in the band. I don't want to insult you. You don't need a bass player. And that was Grant. And so, yeah. 
so I just kind of fell in the music and even, you know, it, it was, so then, you know, I just found like there was a long apprenticeship playing with him. So, and, uh, it, it ended up being a lot more than I ever thought it would be because I didn't know we were going to end up signed and do all of this. You know, so. <laughs> he mentioned the other day, I actually texted him to let him know you were coming on. And uh-huh. he, he said, I asked him if there's any, anything in particular, any good stories that I should, should ask you about. Yeah. I asked yeah. Grant too, but he's Grant. Grant's the one who knows everything. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> James goes, he said, there are so many stories. He says, ask him about, a frat party we played in Suwannee, Tennessee, where there was a lot of vomit involved. Oh, well, yeah, this is going to make <laughs> me sound a lot more aggressive than I am as a person. But let me preface this by saying you have to understand in those days, like now it's a lot more civil. Like when bands tour, they generally, you know, you make an album, you go out, you do 30 shows in the, in the U.S., maybe you go to Europe or vice versa. And But back then, you just stayed on the road. And, right. we, and before we had a record deal, that's the only way we could survive. So at this point, we've been playing at least 150 shows a year. Oh, wow. For a, a few years. I mean, there was, I, I, for some reason, I kept a list of like all the shows we played in a book, like where they were. And I kept this whole journal of all the shows. And I That's kept that all the way up until like awesome. 2000, until the internet consumed everything. And you right. know, now I, now I can just, you know, look up somebody's website or go online or, you know, yeah. social media. But so, you know, and, and we had, at that point, we were doing pretty well, and so suddenly it's like we're we've been on these tours, opening for people, playing these venues, and someone said, and his manager and booking agent said, "You're playing a fraternity party outside of this kind of like like small elite Southern college," and I'm like, "We're playing a frat party," and they're like, "It's," and it you know it was a money it was a money gig, and yeah. they were fans, and it was outdoors, and I'm like, and there is a real real production. I'm like, all right, we're playing it, but these people down front standing right in front of my pedal board and they're really drunk (laughs) and they're, and they're hanging like solo cups of beer over my effects. And so, you know, we have like a stage manager, guitar tech guy, and he's trying to keep them off of the effects and, and, and the tour manager even goes out into the crowd and kind of tries to move them back and, and nothing's working. And then I notice oh, this guy's not only really drunk and going to spill beer on my sex, he's really drunk. Oh. And he, and I see he's about to throw up. And just <laughs> as he starts to throw up, I, he turns slightly, and I put my boot in his back, and I push, <laughs> I push, because I don't want him to vomit on my Wait, back. Yeah. And so I push him into the crowd, and he throws up all over his friends. <laughs> and I think he did get, I think he did get some on my effects. But, you know, so, you know, that was, uh, yeah, you know, it was, what was it, 90-something. It was, you know, people were, yeah. It yeah. Was, it was, uh, the audience, <laughs> you know, shows could get interesting. But, yeah, so that was uh, that, wow, I didn't, I haven't thought of that story in a long time. But. <laughs> well, I got to see you guys live one time. When, Where was it? It was in uh, Philadelphia. You guys were opening up for Maria McKee. Oh, that was a strange tour. I yeah. mean, I, I I liked she was she was really nice. I I liked her and Bruce Brody from who played on Easter by Patti Smith was playing keyboards. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't even with realize. her. 
Yeah, he used to play with John Cale, and so I, I, I liked him. And then, you know, so it was, there was uh, the band was great. It was just odd bill for us. And well, you guys had that all over the place. Uh, going back and kind of researching for James's episode. I mean, you went, if I remember correctly, you went straight from a Maria McKee tour to Rage Against the Machine. Well, there are things in between. We we toured with Love and Rockets, and then there was, I mean, what happened the first record when it came out. It everything made more sense who we played with in a way, you know, because yeah. um, we were mostly we would tour England a lot and play, and the bands made sense. But when the Gefford record came out, it was just such a mess with the label. And yeah, I mean, in my memory of that record it was we weren't even ready to make a record, and it, it, we found out very shortly we were, you know, the A and R guys. I I wasn't even sure when we went to the studio. I thought, oh, we're just recording to see how this goes with this producer. But the A&R guy was leaving Geffen, and so he wanted the record done before he left. And in uh-huh. my opinion, you know, James had written kind of one-third of three different records. And if you'd given him six more months, he would have come up with the perfect record. Um, but things yeah. go as they go, and so no one knew what to do with it. Because if you listen to the first song, we should be with a heavier band. If you listen to the second song, it makes perfect sense we're out playing with songwriters. So yeah. So we were on a lot of, you know, different tours. In the middle of that Rage Against the Machine tour, we hopped over to France and played with Frank Black. It was just that. <laughs> Jeez. I can't even remember. I mean. That's crazy. I mean, we played with a lot of, you know, interesting lineups, like, and just strange. It was, a, you know, it was. But by the time we were doing, like, the Rage Against the Machine stuff, I was really, I mean, I think a lot of us were kind of, like, you know, why don't we just make another record? Like, we're, yeah. I mean, it, it, I like those guys, and it wasn't, it, it was fine being on that tour. They were, they were great people, and and I, had, you know, nice rooms, no problem doing it. But um, it was, yeah, it was just, I was burned out by that point, and oh, I was just yeah, like, yeah. it's just, yeah, that it, it was, you know, I with him, I always preferred it live. I, you guys, I, I thought he never made, he never made a record. They captured what he did. No, and you're right. That was disappointing to me. But by the time we got late into the touring for that album, I think not so much rage, but after that, I, I was, you know, it was almost, it was, it was, it was kind of a job at that point. You know, oh, this is man. this, but not. I don't mean a job like I'm punching the clock, but. I was happy that I was able to play music and get paid to do it and to be, you know, to hang out with people I liked. But it was just, it had lost, I mean, it never was bad live because he's never going to be bad live right. and we could play together as a band and we could make it, it. And once we got on stage, however we felt five minutes before it, it was great. And, you know, he taught me a lot about that. He's like, I don't care if there's one person or 30,000. And with him, you've played to one person in 30,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, it, it, you play as if, it's a room full of people who want to hear you and no matter what, and you know, that's a cliche to a degree, but I, especially in that era, I've, I saw, you know, I've seen a lot of bands come out and not care because yeah. it's not a good night. Yeah, exactly. But I, I didn't get that feeling at all when I saw you guys, obviously. I mean, it was a, if I remember, we were, we were happy playing that show, the theater of, um, theater of living well, arts, living arts. Yeah. I liked that show. We came in, me and my buddy came in and I, I think we missed like the first song, but we we came in and uh, I remember a feeling of hope because that 
that's one of my favorite songs. I mean, I, even before I started this podcast and started reaching out to James and, and, you know, I listen to that album and that song in particular all the time. I absolutely love that song. And that whole first album is amazing. show we walked down and we were able to get right in front of you in, in front of the stage and james just pulls out this trumpet and i'm like oh that's interesting this is going to be a different type of show all right i'm into it yeah you know it's funny i never talk about this you know like after i was out of that band it just kind of like i was in different music scenes and yeah. and you know people didn't know about it and i didn't really I mean, to be honest with you, the, the 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 post when he was going to make a third record, they just the label was kind of demoing him to death. They were trying to drain his money and all of this, and it was just it was just like try another producer, try another producer, and and then yeah. the one like I don't know if, I don't know if anyone knows, but like um, then finally we had uh this guy head who was pj harvey's engineer Ooh. um and and now i think he's a live sound guy because he doesn't like digital recording he was all he's an analog guy and he's brilliant yeah and he's like i want to work with him and so he flew to new orleans but instead of saying we have to spend money and go into my studio he just came and slept on grant's couch <laughs> Wow. He said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna rent some gear. We're gonna mic you up in your rehearsal space, and our rehearsal space sounded fine. And record record the songs you have. And then wow. he went back to England and he and he mixed like what he thought were the four or five finished ideas. And then one that was half finished, he like said the outro doesn't work. He faded it out and he gave it to us. In his mind, why am I wasting your money? Why don't I'm supposed to help you? And so yeah. for us, I think that especially Grant and I, we were really excited by this. And we're like, we should work with this guy. But of course, the label was expecting him to like magically make some brilliant sounding thing that cost all this money. And so yeah. that side of it. So by the end of that, I was just like, okay, I'm, you know, I was just done. Yeah. I was really done. And so when around, I guess, beginning in 99, when I, and I was not, I was living in New York already. Most of the time I still, like New Orleans is so cheap. I kept a room in my friend's house and it was yeah. like, I paid less combined rent than, <laughs> than I, than like a third of the rent I have to pay now. So it's oh, because I had a cheap apartment here too. And so I was just done with it and it wasn't anything to do with them personally. I was just like, James was burnt. I think everyone was yeah. burnt out. And and also I was just getting interested in so many different kinds of music that um I just let it go. And so it's it's nice to talk about it because I love one a lot of people don't know. But the funniest thing about that is I was the third rehearsal with B and Flower when I joined it, which was not that long after I like it was ninety nine right. or two thousand 
the violinist or he's playing viola or whatever, he looks over and I never said anything. He says, wait a minute. You live in New Orleans? I said, I said, and then he's like, did you play with James Hall? And I said, <laughs> I said, how do you know who he is? And he's like, oh, I used to go see you in Boston because he's from Boston. I says, I saw you play in Boston at this theater and I saw you at a club down in New Orleans. I'm like, what? Oh, wow. And, so, and he and I still work together all the time through all these projects to this day. This guy, John Petro, is an amazing multi-instrumentalist who can just, you know, a natural, oh, the kind awesome. of guy who just you look at and we're all like, how do you do it? You know, but um, but so no, no. So it's good to talk. You know, it's good to, you know, Grant and I stayed friends through all of this. And James and I've stayed in touch. And but it's just, um, yeah, sometimes the whole, you know, label that when you sign a big contract and then you don't sell lots of records, it's it's yeah. uh, it's complicated. It gets stressful for you, I'm sure. Yeah, or it's just a lot of people thinking, you know, I remember one conversation with some label person. Maybe you should play a Les Paul Jr. through an orange app. And I'm like, oh. what? <laughs> and oh, we're all, so we should become Caius. Yeah. Or yeah. Something. Or yeah. I don't know. You know what it was? He just had some little success with what was that band, Urge Overkill. Uh, and, yeah. and that's what they were playing. And I'm looking at them like, well, we don't sound like that. What are you talking about? Just, no. You know, that was fortunately the only time. But I loved your sound in James Hall. I mean, it was so fiery. Like the single, I mean, the single, the, the solo in Morning Lust is just oh. incredible. I, that just blows me away to this day. It's just unreal. I don't know if that was me or James, but one of us, but I, I don't, I can't remember. I, yeah, I mean, we, but I'm saying I, yeah, I, I like, no, I thought it was great. And oh, the, the funniest thing, and I won't say much about it, but that, <laughs> that, that same A&R person, we played a show later when we were in demo hell uh, at some <laughs> club and our manager was managing the English uh, songwriter, Richard Thompson, oh, genius yeah. guitar player. Yeah. And Richard happened to be the show, and I'm glad I didn't know it. <laughs> and and then he came backstage, and, and I'm standing there, and he said, uh, you know, I really like the way you play. And uh, that guy was standing with an earshot, and I'd never heard a word about anything I did. After that. I was like, <laughs> you know, I don't know Richard. I, I met him again when he's playing in New York through our manager and stuff. So, you know, we had dinner or something, but I was like, hey, thank I didn't say it, but I was like, thanks. You did me a big favor. You just like... People shut up and left me yeah. alone. <laughs> <laughs> now I don't have to go find an orange amp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I like, but I'm just saying it wouldn't have fit that bad. Right, so. right. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. But your sound changed a lot as when, once you left James Hall. For, 
when going back and, and looking at what I've been able to find, uh, I know you, you worked with Cordero and B and Flower, and particularly B and Flower, this sounds a lot softer. Man, I just, I mean, Dana came from metal yeah. and, and heavy music. And I don't know, a lot of my approach is like, okay, like how I ended up in Cordero or any of that is just like, oh, that's something I haven't done. Sometimes I've joined things just because that's the last thing I think I would do. And so let me go see if I can play that and fit into it and still be who I am. But if you if you turned on a distortion pedal, the or and this a lot of the stuff I played in B and Flower was just very much more minimal than what I played previously. But the Dana's point is she didn't even want a guitar player. She just wanted a steel player. And I had, I, James had bought me a lap steel and I didn't really play it. And I said, well, I can figure it out. And then she wanted it so minimal that it would just be part of the string section. So I was kind of just like, my job was to fit in with uh, the violist. And then she, once she realized I was sensitive to her songs and her concepts, she kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 you can play some chords, you know, here or that. <laughs> and so the yeah. point was there wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, uh, you know, it's the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, everyone was burnt out on just wall of guitar. And yeah. so for me, it was a bit of a, a challenge. And then Cordero came out of that because Ani, who was drumming in Bean Flower, was like, she wanted to do something entirely different and that was just fun and i learned i had to learn all these different styles of music oh all right how does merengue you know how does what is cumbia how does merengue work how do and you know because it's like combining pop or traditional latin styles with indie rock and so that yeah. was just more of a that was, you know, started out as a little side project that just kept going and going and is kind of most things I've joined to. And that's how that, and it was just the viola player from Bean Flower who switched to bass and played in her band. And it just, it just happened, you know? It, <laughs> and Is that where your real uh, love of, of Spanish music started to develop? Yeah, I, yes and no. Well, um, <laughs> When I was playing with James, when we were first going on tour, when we had no money and it was just really, and before that I was working in a restaurant and there was this guy who would come in and he'd bake pastries. And I'm like, this guy's not a pastry chef. There, you know, there's more to him than this. <laughs> and it ends up, man, it would be an entire podcast to talk about this guy's fascinating life. Oh, but wow. 
he is a serious record and book collector. And he and his wife were just patrons of a lot of like artists. And they said, Hey, you know, you're going on tour. Look, we have a house and there's a room in the back. Just put your stuff in, put your stuff in there. What can you pay us 125 bucks a month? I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, I mean, just that way you can afford the good. And so they basically just let me pay what I could to them. Wow. And then as we started making money, they're like, hey, you want to split the house in half and pay us half the rent? You know, they were, but he had this enormous record collection with music from all over the world. Oh, wow. And films by every director you can think of and a lot of jazz records. And I would come off tour and the, and, you know, been on tour for six months. I just want to hang out at home and I just sit there and listen to records. So that was the first place. But then Ani kind of gave me the opportunity to, okay, how do I even, how do you play it? And that's where that came from. And then during the Cordero, the bass player and I got this a job writing um, music libraries for a TV station. A oh, TV wow. network where they give you genres and it's like you write 15, 90 second pieces of music in that genre instrumentals. You know, and the first one was easy. It was like basically songs that sound like all the Brooklyn bands we played with. So we just <laughs> like we, we just imitated our friends. But then, you know, at one point they said, can you create we're starting a Spanish language show. And we have some writers who, you know, are, uh, you know, Cuban or Mexican writers and doing different styles. But can you do, and they gave me certain styles they wanted, three salsa, three samba from Brazil. And so I spent a month just researching it. I hired like traditional players and went into the studio and just would like play whatever I could on the songs, like play bass, like John and I would alternate on bass for the salsa stuff. And then play guitar and and so that further developed it and then for briefly i had a band with a bassist uh, tony mamoni who was in a band perubu and his play with everyone in their you know mother <laughs> yeah. uh, and john and i with three or three colombian precautionists and a bunch, and some jazz guys that explored that further and i went down a real rabbit hole of just like getting into african and south american music for a few years and like i'm not gonna play rock and at the same time i was working for some composers playing on music for contemporary dance and this was like in the this is like early mid 2000s and Mm -hmm. and i got more into improv and so i just went i just went with it and i just so it's it kind of I don't know. That's just what I've done. Oh, this sounds interesting. Let's learn something new. So was that and the wireman? No, this was before that. Oh, okay. Um, wow. And during it, like I, I just play with, I, I'm always doing a lot of different projects. And I, so I was just this composer I'd met in New Orleans and Chris Becker, but he moved to New York and he would just, you know, I there's a trumpet player who plays with a New York jazz guy, William Parker he would just put me in these situations with musicians who I would never expect to play with, you know, it's like, so we would go in to work with this dance company and it's me and then the composer doing electronics and then flip who's a world-class jazz musician. And he's like, Oh, we have the singer Helga Davis. And she's like working with Robert Wilson and, and, you know, every, like she's schooled. And, and, and so at that, 
I liked it because it pushed me. I actually went back and started taking guitar lessons around 2008 just to like, because I was self-taught and I learned how to read music at some point. I'm not a great sight reader, but I just like, I got to tie all of this together because I don't know how all these fragments make sense <laughs> right. together. And theoretically, but no, then, uh, but Andal Wireman grew out of, I had been a collaborator and I co-written songs with people. Okay. But I, I, and I help people finish songs, but I'd never really written songs. And one day I wrote a song and I thought it would be for uh, one of the artists I was working with. And it ended up not being. So I had a few of these ideas and Grant said, well, why don't we demo one of these songs? And I was down there with him in his studio and we did. And I said, oh, man, I should make an album where I just get all these different singers I work with to come in and guest on it. And then I forget, a little while later, Grant's like, look, I'll record the record for you, but on one condition. I said, okay. He says, you have to sing everything. And so I did it and I just did it to, out of pleasure because at the time I was doing much more experimental music in general. Okay. And I just wanted to do songs. But on that, there are like the drummer who I've been working with, who introduced me to all the Colombian music. He played a lot of the stuff on that percussion. And, um, and I just, I don't know. I didn't even, I didn't even know I was going to release that. And that's just been something that's been an on again, off again project that, uh, you know, I have something I recorded in 2017 with that band, that a label was going to put it out. Then COVID happened and they backed oh. out. So I'm just going to put it out though. And, uh, Oh, good. I got. A, I mean, I have a lot of stuff coming out. I suddenly I realized, well, wow, I've made a lot of music in the last three years, but in the next four or five months, I have four or five different, four or five or six different releases. Oh, that are wow. happen. <laughs> that's awesome! So I was like, oh wow, I've done. I, I was. I, I guess I have done something. So you never sang before. You never had, was that something you ever did in, in your spare time? Or in the well, shower? I sing in. Well, I sing in being flower. I sing back. Up. Oh, that's I right. Sing harmony and. I, I would, but like one time in like early nineties, I sit in Grant's apartment and I sort of played around with writing this song and I sang a little and Grant's like, you got to do stuff like that. And I'm like, nah, I don't. Cause it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And then one day I just wrote this song and I was like, oh, I actually can live with that. Ah. And, but I was going to give it to another singer. Cause I was just like, yeah, no one wants to watch me front of band, you know? Cause I just been a, <laughs> I've been a side person for what since, yeah. you know, for, for, 15, 16, 17 years at that point. And yeah. then, but, you know, around that time is when I also just decided I like doing a lot of different things with a lot of different people. And that way you don't get stuck. Um, I don't, it just keeps it fresh. Yeah, you don't just, stagnate. So, and that's around the time, like, you know, Grant and I would just do projects together, different people in New York. And I was, 
and then I got into composing for I done Bean Flower did a couple of films, and I got into composing for dance, uh, like a dance company here, and uh, and that allowed me to do whatever I wanted. Sometimes it'd just be music concrete I'd make with sounds, and other times I I did a piece where it's a lot of percussion and brass, and that's mostly it. No guitar, no anything. Just yeah, Grant was um, saying that you guys when you were living together, you guys did some really creative stuff. Oh yeah, when well, what we used to do when we would get burnt out, we were playing with James. We just go down the rehearsal space at four in the morning, <laughs> and we were playing this. You know, a lot of it was real drone-based music, but oh, we just cool. do whatever. We wouldn't think about it, and and that's kind of how when I he had me come down to New Orleans to make that Ballroom Dance is Dead record with him. That's how that came about. He's like. I want to make a, a record where the bass lines are all just ostinato parts like we used to do in the space, but then you just will go from there. And then the India thing, which dates back to my the cover, Grant mentioned you're familiar with that. Yes. when I heard it, but on one James Hall tour is when his wife was pregnant. He had to fly back to New Orleans before a show, and we were opening for somebody. And instead of canceling the show, they just said, well, why don't you guys go out there and do something without him? <laughs> and so we're like, well, there's those two instrumentals, you know, because we would we improvised a lot in that band, too. Like, we would change songs on tour, and they would just evolve into other things. Oh, that's and so cool. So we said, well, let's do long versions of those two instrumentals. And I had been fooling around with, like, basically, as a version of India you heard, something like that, just sitting around in the hotel room. And so we went out and played it. Oh, and, man. And, and we're like, oh, whatever, we're just going to have fun. The audience is not going to get it. But the kids loved we were in <laughs> I, We were in some weird place. We were, like, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But the people loved it. Oh, that's great. And we're like... Oh, we pulled it off. All right, cool. You know, so so all of this was, you know, happening about the same time. And I just, yeah, then B and Flower got back together. And so, you know, it's just like, um, I don't know. Things, I just fall into stuff and, and go with it. Well, and it's just such a wide variety of, of stuff because I was listening to uh, And the Wireman, and it's just this really cool, like, all right, so the song Before He Gave Up the Ghost. <laughs> Spanish noir. It's just amazing. I love it. And then Rayuela, that's, yeah. that starts off like super menacing, but then becomes like the slinky track. I love that. It's so great. 
Well, the the first record, like the full one, the thing was is there's a certain eclecticism because some of the more rhythmic stuff I was writing with other people in mind okay. at first. Oh, this, yeah. It, just at first. Yeah. And then, and then I just said, you know, then once Grant, you know, laid down the law of, you know, if 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 you want to be able to, you know, if you don't want to pay me full freight or whatever, well, he's going to call me about that and say <laughs> he didn't say that. But he did insist I sing on the album. But so that's how it came about. And then I'm fortunate. I know, like, and then I did some more recording up here with Tony. Um, and, you know, who really working with Tony is another. I have a few key people I've worked with. And, and then another thing was in Being Flower, I met this guy, Paul Watson. Okay. Um, who was playing in a band that was around New York called Blasco Ballroom? But he had been a member of Sparklehurst. Do you remember that yes. band? From, he he played guitar and cornet and Sparklehurst. And oh, okay. But it ends up he has a long history. In the seventies, he was a, a mostly a free jazz player on oh, trumpet. Wow. And then he got into like this band, the Orthotonics, which was a punk era band that kind of blended like punk and jazz and. Oh, wow. So he's this incredible, and then he got into play. He plays everything, you know. You know, so I just was thinking of him, and I'm like, I really want to work with because I've been working with some trumpet players. I want a trumpet player, but I want one that's sensitive to song. And so I just called him up, and I'm like, What are you doing? He's like, Well, not that much, you know. And I, he lives in Richmond, so he started working, and he kind of became the you know second person that the you know core member of the that group when it worked but he unfortunately w around the time we made that first record he, he he was diagnosed with parkinson's disease oh wow and so you know he stopped touring a few years ago and that's you know even though that band still exists is kind of when i it doesn't you know i mean we have a great sax player nikki d'agostino now but uh it's just yeah you know it was uh it was hard that's it was tough, a, yeah a mentor, a fantastic musician, and uh, you know we, he's still around. He work, he, but he can't. You know he's he still makes, creates, but it's limited. You know he can play some synth, he can play some but no text work, and it's you know it's a hard, it's a rough disease. You know. Oh God, yeah, it's it, it's heartbreaking what it does to some to the most creative people. That it's just so yeah. So that's just. Um, at one point, I'm like, wow, I've been way too eclectic in all the music I've made in my life. You know, maybe I should have yeah. just <laughs> stuck to something. But I feel like I'm at a point now where it's all kind of tied together. And uh, and it's, you know, it, it, I'm glad I did it, you know. I saw some interesting things. I, I haven't even really been able to, to dive too deep into these. ALN, This Is Where... And, oh, the stuff I did with Norman and yeah, Algis. Yeah, and then and the new stuff you're doing uh, with the Royal Arctic, Royal Arctic Institute. Yeah, that's like a funny, like kind of project during the pandemic. You know, I, um, I mean, I got COVID really early on, and oh, wow. uh, like a lot of people. But then it, I got 
it attacked my nervous system. So for about six or seven months, I had long haul COVID and I was, and you know, I had a couple of like a mini stroke and you know, it was just like all kinds wow. of, but I, you know, it's just coming and going. I was feeling fine most of the time, but I, the record I just mixed, I recorded it at home during all that time. And, and, um, just me, but I get a call from the, the guitar player from Royal Arctic Institute. He's from Alabama, and he used to come see James Hall play. And I hadn't seen him for years, and he moved to Austin, ended up playing with Rocky Erickson, you know, who yeah. was uh, in the 13th. Yeah. He played with him, and I just ran into him at some show in New York, I don't know, in 2000-something, you know, like <laughs> 10 years, eight years ago, probably. And Oh, my gosh. And and we've reconnected and he's into a lot of music I'm into and, and we, we've, we would jam sometimes, but, uh, he called me up and said, and it was the 20 summer of 2020 last summer. And he said, Hey, I'm making an EP with my band. Would you come play some guitar solos on it? And so I went in and played lead guitar on three songs. And that was that, but then there wasn't a lot happening. And he said, well, you know, we're going to write another EP. Do you maybe just want to, you know, I'll have a guitar here for you. I'm like, oh, well, that's great. Ultra lazy. I'll just show up with a few effects pedals and, and just take the train off to Hoboken. And, you know, whenever you can, we, we rehearse Saturdays and maybe help us write the next EP. And so it's just during the pandemic, I go out there and play with them. And it ends up the rhythm section. They were in this band, Das Damen, which was around oh my in gosh. the 80s. and yeah. But how I knew them was they backed up Arthur Lee from Love when he uh, came back in the early 90s. And James opened for Arthur Lee at the 930 Club. And I spent wow. time talking to the bass players. So basically, it's these three guys. And it's funny because, they, you know, they, they're, they're kind of like the backing band for the, for the crazy 60s, you know, <laughs> acid casualties. Yeah. And... They have this great keyboard player, Carl Bagley. And so we developed, you know, we came up with six, seven songs and they kept four of them. It's all instrumental. And then the bass is from Yola Tango, who they're friends with, was like, you know, all recorded in, in Yola Tango's studio slash rehearsal space. So we went wow. in and did it and did it live. And jazz style, there's a few overdubs, but nothing. They're just additional sounds or textures. And uh, that comes out. February 4th, you know, it's on yeah. uh, digital and then cassette label and, and it's, yeah, that's great. It's a whole other, you know, I, it's a side, I get to just play guitar and I really love uh, working on that, you know, just. I thought it was beautiful because the, the guitar is kind of, it's, I don't even, I don't want to say maybe sparse, I don't know, but it's, it's very gentle. Yeah, it is. And I loved it. Oh, it was so good. That first track, I think it's called Fishing by Lantern or something. It's Yeah. Oh. That... Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's it's you get to, I'm like, yeah, I get to go play through a nice fender amp and, yeah. and uh and play, you know, I mean there's effects all over, but but yeah. play clean and melodically and 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 because, you know, the album like you said, the ALN, which is really just the same thing as this is where it's just Norman Westbrook. I was gonna ask you about that, because I'm actually editing uh the episode I recorded with Norman Westberg right now. All right, multitask. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, so th that just came up. Algis and I were hanging out a lot and, and playing. And we actually, for a while, were doing this. It never became a band. It was Dana and Algis both on bass. 
Oh, wow. And I was playing guitar, and then this drummer, Vinny from Unsane, was drumming. And then uh, a poet uh, who was in a band called Enablers, Pete Simonelli, who's great, was fronting it. But it never, it's just, we, you know, recorded lots of jams and rehearsals. It never became anything. But Algis and I were doing some duo shows, largely improvised, but based oh. on certain parameters. Algis was set up. And then I guess we did a night where it was, we played, and then Norman played, and then the three of us played together. And so Al just, just started recording. We did it some more, and he started recording it. And the first release was just club recordings. And then wow. the This Is Where recording was just we went into a basement and, and improvised and then chose, chose the sections that worked. And then Al just and Norman you know, mixed it, and, uh, and it, it came out. That was great. You know, I do a lot of stuff like that, and it's good to have, but a lot of it hasn't been on record. It's just been live. So it was nice to have it oh. come out on record. And they're great people to work with. I mean, Norman, I love the way he plays. So. Yeah. Norman was just awesome. I love that guy to death. He's so cool. Yeah. And so for me, and I was always a fan of Swans and a fan of theirs. And, and so to get to work with them, it's been, it was a lot of fun. It was great. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll do something again. So you said you've got a bunch of things coming out over the next few months. What, it, what can you tell us about yeah, what's coming well, out? I, there's a, pro, a producer in town named Eric Hogemeyer, and he and I did something in the vein of what I did with Norman and Algis. Um, okay. And the, it's project's called ISU, I-S-U, but said like it's Spanish. Um, it means nothing. It, we just, it just, <laughs> it, it, I mean, if you spelled it Y and put a gap, it could be like the middle of a, a, a conjunction and a sentence in Spanish. But yeah. <laughs> what we did is we were just talking about site-specific aviates. So we took some battery-powered instruments and went into a tunnel at Central Park oh, wow. and recorded something and then went to the studio and put some real textural, like put some sense on it, like modular sense and guitars that are really treated. And then we went to an old church and did the same thing. And then we cut it up into five pieces of music, and then I added just uh, layers of voices, not lyrics, but just as textures in the oh, background wow. here and there. And he put some beats in it, and that's going to come out in January. And it's on our own Sonamity Music label. It'll be, I think, digital, because I don't think we're going to wait the 10 months yeah. uh, it takes for vinyl unless if somebody comes along and says i'll do the vinyl we'll do it because it's just a side project and then i'm finally going to release the last batch of wireman recordings we put out a couple of them as singles but okay. in february we're going to release the whole album oh awesome uh,
then February 4th, we have the Royal Arctic Institute. And then March or April, Simon, who is the violinist to play with Bee and Flower, who's a fantastic composer and producer and everything. He has a great solo album. His name's Simon Goff. He's a vi- solo yes. violin album. He fortunately keeps me working a lot. But um, we did a film score for a Swedish director, and it ended up better than we thought it would. And oh. so that gets released, I think. I mean, he's a busy, busy man with like, you know, managers who schedule these things. So um, (laughs) I think it's coming out in April uh, or March or April. So that is, and then during the pandemic, I was also jamming to give a Tony and uh, from and Peru, and then John from Cordero, Be and Flower, and then Eric, who was I did the Isu album with, came into it, and we've recorded a bunch of music that we're probably just going to release as a series of singles. And I'm not sure when we're starting that, but I imagine it'll be in the next few months. Uh, and I think. The temporary name is Red Cat, uh, but I don't know if we all agree on that. But I, I, I'll put it out there. Uh, you know, I think we do, but you know, I don't want to. So, but it, it's fantastic as always. Anything, anytime I get to work with Tony and John and those people, it's it's fantastic. And um, so that's coming out. And then hopefully, this record I just recorded that's under my own name. That probably because it's going to take a while with lab- the label. Probably won't be out till twenty twenty three. But I'm going to should start playing some shows with it. Oh, awesome! And that's kind of if you took what I did with Norman and Algis and organized it and made it <laughs> compositions and put vocals on it. It's it's. I mean, it's hard to. Exp- it's where. If you're a song person, you'd hear the album and say it's compositions. If you're a composition person, you hear the album and say it's songs. But there's no lyrics. It's just layers of textural guitar and layers of voices and some sense playing the bass line. It's in... um... something i'm really excited about because i feel it ties together a lot of what i've been doing mm-hmm. and then also in the spring probably just online i'm going to put out some of the music i've written for dance companies over the last 10 years oh, um, awesome. i'm going to remix some of that and flush it out a little so that it makes sense as just a listening experience without the movement so so i'm putting my website back up online uh the next week so if people go there i'll have links to all of this it's just lynnwrightcomposer.com uh, so oh great but 
Yeah, I'm just kind of cleaning out the, uh, what do they have, photo dumps on social media. This is my, the next few months are going to be my giant music dump. Right. But th that doesn't mean the music's <laughs> disposable. It's great music. I all means a lot to me. I just oh. need to get it out there. So, you know, the pandemic kind of interrupted uh, a lot. So I'm really excited to hear this stuff. This, the way you're describing it, it sounds like it's just stuff that's right up my alley. I'll send you stuff from the tracks we're talking about. I'll also send you something off the album that will probably not get released till like winter 2023. Just one of those because I think, oh, yeah. you know, I want, yeah, it's, I'm really proud of it. It sounds, Simon did a fantastic job mixing it. And I what we just, I didn't know about Simon until Dana emailed me back and told me about it. And I listened to Vale today. Mm hmm. Oh my God, that is an incredible album. Look, he is changed. Like, he, yeah, he he just is like he's become somebody that that um you know any time he says do you want to work on something I say yes and I bring I trust him like I asked him to produce the record I just said one I wanted somebody younger to produce it I didn't want someone who had any of the history I had. Two, I have a lot of respect for him as a musician mm -hmm. and also as a um, a produce a comp you know a, a producer and um, an arranger, etc. And I just wanted somebody. I, I just wanted somebody with a different point of view yeah. to come in. And, and but what's interesting, I recorded. I did a little recording with Tony because I don't have an organ at home, and I wanted an organ and. You know, you're recording in an apartment in New York. Occasionally, you have to run something through a different amp. So I did a, about a, a day with Tony um, doing a little of that. But I got a setup at home, and it sounds, you know, I just set up some apps and things. And it sounds, it sounds good, but he would just – I'd send him things. And he would write back and say, you know, just – it was really just simple. But he just, you know, composition suggestions and arrangement suggestions. And then – I went over there to mix it. We were, like I said, we were supposed to go on tour. For, you know, he was doing a Veil tour opening for somebody. Oh, okay. And I've never tour managed anybody, but he said, I've been on tour so much my whole life. I was going to go out and tour manager. Oh, wow. Just because he, you know, who wants to drive around Europe on their own? Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. You, it's some long drives. And I said, no, no, I'll go do it. And then we'll mix my record because I was going over there anyway. But it got canceled. You know, I think a lot of things are locked down in Europe right now. And yeah. so I, you know, I we mixed our record and I helped them out on a little just with some engineering stuff on another project. And uh, he's become kind of what Grant was, you know, Grant still is. But, yeah. you know, he's become another one of those people that I just work with a lot like dana is too i mean yeah i'll work anything dana asked me to do i'd say yes so. oh absolutely yeah i love she's her such, work she's such an amazing mu musician and yeah. you know writer i just love working with her so well she's so sweet she got like like you said as soon as you guys were done she emailed me back and then in fact uh oh this is one thing i wanted i did want to ask you about before we wrap this up shilpa ray Oh, that, well, that's just, that's a funny aside. Um, my friend Rich Hutchins uh, was drumming with her and she, you know, the guy, she, I mean, she's just, uh, she's a strict solo artist and she has different bands she's used over the years. And, yeah. And she put out, oh, I forget, it's one record she put out and I had heard some songs off it and I liked, but Rich was drumming with her and the guitarist couldn't tour. And so she, uh, you know, he just suggested that they were doing a European tour and an American tour. And he suggested I 
me as a guitar player. And since I also sing, because she had a lot of background vocals on that album. So I, you know, went in and learned the music and rehearsed with her. And it's funny, I was just, I forget what I was, I think Simon and I were maybe, the Wireman record were finally releasing. We were finishing that in Berlin. So I just sat in his apartment and for two days and figured out all the songs. And then <laughs> uh, for some reason, right before I have to do things, I'm always flying back to New York but on, and jet lag. But... <laughs> But I went in and rehearsed with her, and she's she's an amazing singer and a yeah. great songwriter, and and so I just learned, you know, all the guitar parts, and you know, we we did, I think, was this 2017, 18, something like that. We just did, um, you know, we did a tour, and uh, and and it was a lot of fun, and and uh, you know, it's the I don't do a lot of get in the van in America anymore, just. Um, I mean, I probably would for my own music, but I yeah. just uh, look. You gotta understand with James. I think I played twenty. I don't know, man. It's a ridiculous amount of full American tours. God, uh, like I don't even. I not that, but I mean, we just at one point we just yeah. stayed on tour. Like ninety three into ninety four, we were just on tour. You know, all the time. And, and I don't. No, I think it's great. I think it's it's. That's gotta should, be tough, if you have, though. Not when, not when you're in your 20s. Are you kidding me? Uh, I guess so. I guess not. I guess, okay. That's not tough. I mean, <laughs> tough is when, I mean, come on. Tough Tough is trying to work two jobs and raise three kids on your own. That's tough. That, you know, yeah. it's like, it, I guess I'm looking at a it, tough life. I'm looking at it through my late 40s eyes right now. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I'm saying. So now looking at it, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to go out and like get in the band and, and slug it out right. at a bunch of clubs when I'm, when I'm 51 years old, yeah. you know, <laughs> but I do like playing and I like going out and touring and she had a fantastic band and, um, that's some really and, cool music. I was listening to it today. Yeah. Yeah. So I played, you know, but that was just more of like, I got hired into the tours. It's not anything I contributed to or wrote or, you know, I just played other people's parts and, and did what she wanted me to do. And, and, uh, it was, yeah, I, I I'm glad I got to do it. I, and it, you know, it had been a while since I was strictly a side person with somebody and that, that was, you know, that was great. Well, just before we started recording, Dana sent me another email and said, ask him about Reverend Vince Anderson, too. Oh, yeah, this is this is great. OK, so when I like, like I guess it's February 99, I was just basically, you know, I was I, I was I was in a relationship with a woman in New York. I was living here. I would just go. James would call me, say, hey, let's rehearse. We're going to write. I've written some songs. And I go down there and we were burnt out and I was done. And yeah. basically I told myself, I'm going to hold on till the next record. And then if the record is, you know, something makes us all happy, I'll tour. If not, I'll make the record and I'll leave because I was, I was just burnt. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't even playing. Like I was playing, but I wasn't, I didn't have the passion I had. And then, so James and I just sat down and decided, you know, it's time. We got to, we both got to go do different things. Yeah. And so, you know, and then shortly thereafter, there was like two months later, there was no band. Uh, so everyone was in the same boat. It's just, so I came to New York and I was like, man, what am I, you know, some, I guess some, somebody called me up and I forget who was, they got me. They were saying I should go audition. I think it was with Rufus Wainwright. And then oh, someone else called me up and said, don't go do it. And I said, what do you mean? They're like, you're burnt. 
you don't want to deal with this stuff. He's not, I don't know what was going on with him because I don't know him at all. I didn't do the audition, but they're like, it's not going to be fun. You know, it's, it's incredible music, but it's not going to be fun. Right. You'll burn out. Just you, you'll, you'll end up just hating everything. So I just said, you know, forget it. And, you know, I think I went to LA and did try to, James's manager called me, I played with somebody and then I didn't dig that either. So I just came back to New York and I was like, man, I don't know. And I just got a job. Oh, wow. I was like for the first time, because I've been playing with James, I got like a regular, my friend worked at a children's book publisher. And I basically just went there and like, so funny. I went in there and I didn't, you know, I, I'd been a musician. I was fortunate. I'd just been a musician. And yeah. It's like, there's this computer and I'm like, you know, she, she like, she and her boss just kind of snuck me in and like taught me how to do everything. Okay. Oh, this wow. is Excel. This is word. This is, you know, and so I just, I was like their, their assistant, I guess. And, 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 and it was fine, but I actually enjoyed it because I was just like, for once I was home, I was seeing my partner, you know, every day. Cause she and I, she had worked for Polygram publishing. We just, our whole relationship was like, all right, meet me here. All yeah. right, I'll be home for two months. Okay, I'll, you know, it was, uh, it's, that's the hard uh, side. That's yeah. the only hard side of touring is relationships. But, but I just like, I didn't know what I wanted to do musically, but this guy, Reverend Vince Anderson, who's a, an institution at this point, he's an amazing guy, an incredible piano player. Oh, wow. And he's been doing a weekly show in New York since the nineties. And he's still, there's just a documentary out about him. If I you want to see it called I, the Reverend. Yeah. I saw that. I was, I was trying to find music for the album, the 13th apostle. And I could uh, only find uh, one track. It's all right. You don't need the, the, the his, <laughs> he, you know, his stuff later is better. I mean, you don't need to dig that out. Um, but <laughs> No, I'm not saying because it's bad, but I'm just saying compared to what he's he went on to do. But okay. what happened is some um, I knew a guy from some label who you know the whole James thing and here in New York and oh I knew what it was he he had worked for TVT but he I think he he worked for this label Fiction which is basically just the Cure you know oh okay and so I was hanging out with him and this guy Chris Perry who managed the Cure I don't know how this stupid music industry stuff but we would go out <laughs> to dinner a lot okay. And he's the funniest guy. This guy, Lin, uh, they named him after Lyndon B. Johnson, but I won't call him Lenny Johnson. And it's he, he said, let's go see this guy, the Reverend. He's kind of like a gospel Tom. At the time, he's more Tom, Tom Waits, but if you played piano like Fats Waller or something, you know, and it's true. And, and so he was doing something for a compilation album, and we just went in the studio, and I played a Chuck Berry solo, and it was fun, and it was powerful. And then... So when I, anyway, when I came back to New York and I got this job and I just didn't like, I'm like, I don't know, I want to love music again, you know? And yeah. he was doing a weekly gig at the Continental, which was mostly, you know, it's an indie club, a punk club, whatever, you know, whatever yeah. you wanted to call it at that point in time. But every Sunday night, he would just play three sets. It was free, you know, get a cut of the bar and, <laughs> and, and, he normally it's like Barry at the time it's Barry Sachs upright bass and drums and he and he always has amazing bands his sax player she's phenomenal and and he just said why don't you come you know because I'd done some shows with him earlier and he's like why don't hey, why don't you come to, you know sit in and play and so I'm down there playing like you know three sets 
a week every Sunday night. And, and wow. it's like no pressure. There's no record deals. There's nothing. There's just playing music. And the third set was always just, you know, crazy. And then <laughs> I guess I walk up and, and uh, there's this dude on bass and, um, you know, subbing for his bass player playing electric. And, and I, uh, I don't know, I was soundtracking my guitar. And I think, I don't know, I played like, I think I, I, I just heard Al Green on the radio. So I started playing Love and Happiness, just like fooling around, you know, because yeah. I always, I, I love Teeny Hodges, what a great guitar player, you know, and, and great tone. So basically, I was like, man, I love that song. And it ends up as Tony, who I still work with. So, <laughs> wow. you know, it's, so I just, um, you know, I played with him and I forget, it was like six, seven, eight weeks. And then his bass player came back and they were going back to the original lineup. But at that point, I was like, wow, I love music again. You know, that's, that's awesome. all it took was two months of like just playing with people. And, and then Ani moved to New York, Ani Cordero. And she, and that's how the whole Bee and Flower thing, she came up to me and said, I'm playing with this, I'm playing with this singer, Dana. And she needs somebody to, you know, you have a lap steel, don't you? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll figure it out. So, <laughs> that's, so that's kind of how the Reverend, and I played with him a bit around then, but I was just, um, you know, I was doing other stuff, touring with other people, working. And so, you know, I didn't continue, but his band now is just fantastic. And oh, yeah. uh, they play every Monday at Union Pool, as, you know, anyone who's seen the documentary knows, but it's, he's something, he's something special, you know, yeah. you just gotta, you I know, just, it's just, it's what he does. Just, it, it, it's, it's great music, but it's also just great for, for the community. And it's great for that society has somebody like that guy doing what he does for people beyond music. Even he's yeah. just a great human being and a great, you know, great character. Oh, that's wonderful. When you go to support the new releases, are you going to be playing outside of New York at all, or are you going to just kind of stick locally? I well, with with Royal Arctic Institute, there's going to be. Uh, I just got some dates from them, and I think I'm going to be able to do all the shows with them. But no, there's going to be. Uh, we'll be playing in February in uh, Providence, Boston, New Hampshire, Portland, Maine, Maryland. There's a date in Maryland. I'm not sure exactly where in Maryland, oh, cool. but I just found out about that, and. Um, and also here in New York. And then I think for the time being, the other stuff will, will just be, be local. But I'm looking, you know, and later in 2022 and 23, I'll probably start with my solo stuff, touring it and playing it more. And uh, I mean, I've gotten this habit just like playing in, more in Europe. It's just been easier for me. And okay. I can, it's I, just because I, I, what happened is, and B and Flower, when we got back together, we just, they, Dana had moved to Berlin and the yeah. band had been based in Berlin. So when we got back together, even though most of us were living in New York and some were in Berlin, we just toured Europe. And then Wireman mostly toured Europe, though we would do some East Coast things. So, uh, but I might, I, I mean, I would like to be able to do some East Coast shows and I might do it. I just haven't, um, I mean, the last year was kind of with my health and everything, just a little like I didn't know what was, you know, I didn't, I, I was waiting to see. So I'm going to set some things up. So for now, it's mostly been studio and there will be, but there there will be those dates with Royal Arctic Institute. So that's awesome. Well, if, if 
the uh, Maryland shows. Nothing, nothing in Maryland is too far away from me, so hopefully I'll be able to get out there. Where do you Where do you live? I live exactly. in Winchester, Virginia. Ah, oh, okay, so okay. I am uh, seventy five miles due west of DC. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know where you are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I, I spent a lot of time in Rich because of Paul Watson from Sparkle Horse. We yeah. like Wireman used to play in Richmond all the time. Okay. And I would also back him up doing solo stuff or improvised stuff. So I've spent a bit of time in Virginia. I, I love it here. I moved up here from Alabama, but oh, really? Where in Alabama are you from? Uh, well, I, okay, so. I lived in Alabama for about 10 years. My wife is okay. from there and my, all my three of my kids were born there, but it was um, way down Southeast Alabama. Like, uh, is a, I'm not sure if you know where Dothan is. Yeah, I know where Dothan is. Okay, so, I lived in New Orleans and then Atlanta prior to that. So, and, and James used to tour the Southeast. Okay. Um, that was our rent. That's what I called our rent circuit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you go play six or seven shows around the region and come home and, you know, you can eat. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's telling me about playing Tuscaloosa a lot. And, but I, yeah, I lived um, about half an hour west of Dothan and right right off of Fort Rucker. Uh, yeah. John from Royal Art Institute is from Mobile. That's oh, where I first met him. I love Mobile. I love yeah, Mobile. But it, it was odd. We used to play like you know. There's a club in Pensacola called Sluggos. Did you ever know that club? I've I've heard of it, but I've never been. I I didn't go to too many shows because I I moved down to Alabama and then got married a couple of years after that and had kids and then the money was oh, just. Oh man, just say, yeah. say no more. Say no more. <laughs> <laughs> You have kids, and oh. your kids, your kids are your life, and that's how it should be. Oh yeah, but we used to go up there. I used to go to uh, Tuscaloosa. Montgomery, Atlanta. In fact, one of the one of the few shows I did get to see down there was um, Steve Vai in Birmingham, and I missed Tone Loke playing in a bar in Dothan. I, what? I just how does that happen? I don't know. Tone well, no, I'm not talking about you missing yeah. it, but I'm talking about <laughs> how does Tone Loke play Dothan? I don't know. This was like because uh, I, I was married at the time, which is probably why we didn't go. Uh, so let's see, he got married in 2001. So it's probably like 2003 or so. So he wasn't exactly at the height of his career, and uh, it was just at some dive bar in Dothan. It's just crazy. I wanted to go. That probably so would have been great. I would have loved it. But I, I think we saw it. And then I think if I remember correctly, we just kind of forgot about it. And then like a week or two afterwards, I'm like, Oh, wasn't tone local. Yeah. That passed. Arr. I don't listen to a whole lot of it. I don't know much of it. I never got into it when I, when it was, you know, when I was young, I was into the heavy stuff, you know, and, and, uh, but I, I've, do like certain artists like i really like tech nine and i love hopson but oh wow yeah yeah but you know i mean you get you get the big names i'm just no it's just boring to me i just i just i like the guys that are that, that kind of stretch it and make it add, add humor to it or, or just some weird something out of left field so that yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I went through when hip hop first was when they still called it rap, and it was yeah. first coming out. I was really into it, and then I think kind of the golden age from like the late '80s through the late '90s, I was really into a lot of it. And there's still like to me though, I mean, I think what's interesting now is the underground stuff, like you said, the people who just or don't, you know, they just do something different. They take it to you know, they take it in a different direction. They, yeah. You know, 
Like I liked Race Remmerd for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just so I don't know, man. There's so much music. It, it there it's is, hard to keep up with it. it. It's so hard. You know, it's it's hard to find. It's it's hard to find new stuff that you like because there's just so much to go through. It, yeah, that's what I. That's why I like working with younger musicians. Um, and I do it whenever I can is because one, they turn you on to music you haven't heard, but two, they'll, I mean, I think we were this way. Everyone kind of digs back through the music from when they were young, you know, like, you know, 20 years earlier or something. Yeah. And, and there's stuff you miss when you're around in an era, because like you said, you're, you know, you go, you're just listening to heavy music or whatever. Yeah. And then somebody comes along and said, Oh, this band from back then. You're like, what? They were around when I was in my twenties. I don't yes. remember them. I thought I knew everything. That, that happens to me. That happens to me so many, so many times. I've like Swans. I knew of Swans, but like the first thing I heard from them was "White Light from the Mouth of Infinity" when it came out, and it kind of freaked me out. And I was just like, oh, yeah. "Oh, I don't know if I can get into this." And then I let it go until "Leaving Meaning" came out, and then I don't know if you know Howard Wolfing, right? Yeah, he is the publicist. Yeah, he's, I he, think he, I think he's been the publicist for a couple of things I've toured or played on. Yeah, definitely. Has. Yeah, he's he's for the Royal Arctic Institute. Yeah, he's he's. Well, said, yeah, but I mean, in the past, I mean, I, I, you know. Yeah, well, definitely. He reached out to me and was like, "Hey, because um, I've any basically anybody he sends to me, I, I'll have on because I trust Howard. I've, he's sent me some great people. A lot of the music I was telling you about the New Orleans stuff, Louis Michaud and all those guys." Most people on Nouveau Electrique, I've you know I've had yeah. on, I've had on because of him, and so he he I think he kind of th- did me a favor because he's like, hey, Michael Girard is doing some limited press. He's like, if you're interested, I'll kind of put you on the list, and maybe we can get you in him on, on the podcast. And I'm like, yeah, it'd be great. So now he's like, he confirmed it. And I'm like, oh wow, now I have to go look up some Swan. I got to go listen to old Swans. I'm like, okay. And then I started realizing how much was out there. I'm like, oh my God, never going to get caught up. And I just started listening. Like, I missed so much of this. I I knew I, I could have seen them live so many times or had all these this music, and I, I missed it all. Yeah, I mean, I, I was into them in the 80s, and then when James was in Mary, I hope they opened for Swans, like um, wow. five or six shows, and I saw, and, and then... In the '90s, I kind of just got into, you know, like I, I, you know, there was, there, I was aware of the albums, I heard them, but I wasn't yeah. focusing on it. And then with Angels of Light, I knew people playing in the band, and I liked the band, and I liked the music, and I, you know, got back into it. And I think all the records they've made since they've come back oh, yeah. have been, are just, you know, phenomenal records, oh, and man. just, uh, yeah, they're great. But in the last one, they made. I, it's yeah. I the, mean, it's, it, the title track is just haunting. That gets in my yeah. head. Leaving meaning just stays in my head for days. It's just so sp- spooky and beautiful. It's just that yeah piano line, and that it's just unbelievable. So you know, it's 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 great, and you know, so yeah. But th- there's all kinds of you know, because if you get on a kick with music, like all right. I'm going to go explore this kind of music for a while. Well, while you're exploring that, there's like 20,000 other things. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And you can't listen to it all. And and then, then I get frustrated because I want to listen to it all, but 
it's like I played on an electronic record uh, not that long ago, and uh, you know, and I surprised I want a guitar, but basically I just treated my guitar with lot, you know, heavily affected, and and and. Uh, but you know, that's a whole other thing about like EDM. It's like there's like so many sub genres. I'm just like, I don't, don't even tell me what they are. Just tell me who the artists I should listen to. Oh, I, I had a band on a, a pretty heavy band, really cool called Astronoid. Okay. And yeah. Yeah. I, I saw that. I haven't listened to that podcast. Oh, uh, Brett Poland. He, that dude's talented. It's a great band. And I think if I remember correctly, they created their own genre kind of as a joke. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was hilarious because we, we talked about how many genres and subgenres of genres there are. And, and I'm like, you people just make up their own. And they, there's only one band in this genre. And they're like, Oh yeah, we, yeah, we kind of did that. I think it was like, they made up that a genre called like dream core or something. And it was just it was hilarious. And they stuck that on their band camp page. And I think they're the only band in that genre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, it's, yeah, whatever. I mean, yeah, I get, I get, you know, labels. I mean, like, how, how do you define what Dana does? You, you don't. Yeah, you can't. I mean, between Bee and it's, Flower and Insect Arc, it's just. It's just music. Yeah. You know, so, you know. I kept you for quite a while here, man. But so where can people find you and follow the music and uh, support you with the, all the new releases you've got coming out? Well, there's, if you, my website's lynnwrightcomposer.com. You can find me on, I don't really, you, I'm bad about Facebook, but I <laughs> am on there. But if you look up my name on Instagram, uh, there's also an Add the Wireman page, but basically I'm funneling more and more through my own. Okay. There's, will be uh, Sonambula Music on uh, Bandcamp is where I'm going to be putting out uh, some of these new ambient releases and then just under the band, different band names. Uh, okay. But uh, yeah, my website will have links to everything and that way you don't have to go through the you know whole list of stuff I just threw at <laughs> you. So. Well, that's awesome. I feel like uh, we've kind of been circling and I'm finally glad to to get you on the podcast. And yeah, Grant mentioned he said, "Hey, this guy loves to talk to you." And then he mentioned that you knew Bone Dance is Dead, and I was like, "What? We put that out and didn't even do much publicity <laughs> for it." You know what? It's it's it sold a few hundred copies. You know, uh, I, you know, it's just I don't even have a copy oh, of it. I got to get that because I, I don't have a oh, physical I'll, copy. I'll send it to you. Oh my gosh! I'll, I'll find one. I think there's one around. Now it's on CD. It's not on I vinyl. Love, but I love CDs. Okay, I have four thousand behind me. You can't see them, but I right. Okay, good. So I'll <laughs> send you one of those, or I'll bring it. I'll, I'll I'll write you and get your your info and yeah, uh, oh, awesome. send it to. But so Grant, much. oh, that's an, an yeah. Grant and I are finally gonna um, make another one this this uh, coming year. Oh, I mean, you almost forgot he he actually mentioned that to me at, uh, when we were recording. So that I'm so glad because that to me when I found that. It, that was just, oh gosh, it was just such a find for me. It's become one of my favorites. I absolutely love that.
We just did that with this guy, Tony Nazero, a drummer. We grabbed him. He played in a band called Drums and Tuba, which is funny. It is tuba and drums <laughs> and, and electronics. <laughs> and he's, I mean, this has nothing to do with it, but he's a, an amazing drummer. And we seriously, I think Grant came up here. We went to rehearsal space for an afternoon. I went down to New Orleans. We went to rehearsal space for afternoon. Then we rehearsed with him once. And then we walked in the studio and we just cut it. And God. And the rule was it was live, and on the songs where there's like a you know a few overdubs, you had to do the overdubs in a take. Oh, like, so there was wow. no punching in, nothing. It was just performances, and so we just wow. do a few takes of of each song until we then we choose the one that we you know we just wanted, and really we just did it for ourselves. You know, we're just yeah. like. You know, we we need to. We hadn't worked together in in uh, uh, quite a while, and we just wanted to do something. And uh, yeah. it was that was kind of our. We you know around that time we were working on some other stuff. That was our reconnecting. So it was you know, yeah, I, it, it it meant a lot to me. And uh, but uh, I, you know, I think the next one will actually not be as uh, lazy about it. And, uh, <laughs> It's the one side of doing too many projects, you know, you gotta, you, you sometimes move on before you should. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, man, thank you so much. Thanks. I hope, hope I didn't blab too much. No, this has been fantastic. Seriously, I have been a huge fan since the first album came out. My Love, Sex and Spirit, the first James Hall came out. Great. I, Feeling of Hope is just seriously, it's one of my favorite songs of all time. The funny thing about feeling of hope is we were recording in this old Nashville studio yeah. that still had all the seventies decor <laughs> and, and, but the best like echo in the whole place was the bathroom. <laughs> but some, somebody had a glass shelf with all of these glasses on it in the bathroom. Don't ask me why. And, and we put an AC 30 in there when we, cause we recorded most of that. Like we would track mostly live and the basic guitar based drums were just a lot of takes, but we were running out of time and, you know, we're on tape. And so we're doing all the guitar overdubs and they just, and I don't know, I've been recording for 16 hours and, and it's like, Oh, we got to get the guitar solo on feeling hope. And I, and so they just cranked that amp up and then, I don't know why we didn't hear it, but we go in there to turn it back down and, and all the glasses had bounced off the shelf. And oh. It was, I'm like, oh, I hope, I, you know, fortunately no one sent a bill or anything. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And this has been a blast. Yeah. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm glad we did it. And Me too. Yeah. I, I just realized after Grant told that, I'm like, wait a minute. He's had like five people I know on the show and now... <laughs> Between Dana, Grant, James, and Norman, people I've worked with, and yeah, so good. Thanks for letting me uh, interrupt your night. Oh gosh, Dylan, thank you so much for coming on. I, I'm so glad we did this, and I'm gonna let you go get some rest now. <laughs> <laughs>